All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. As was introduced regarding myself that I am the founder and chancellor of the Islamic Online University, a university whose motto is changing the nation through education, changing the nation through education. Now this is the goal of the university, to utilize education as a means of changing the ummah, because the ummah today is in need of change. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُغَيْرُ مَا بِقَوْمٍ حَتَّى يُغَيْرُ مَا بِأَنفُسِهِمْ That Allah does not change the condition of a people until they change, till they change themselves. That if we are to change the future for Nigeria as a part of the Muslim Ummah, then the Muslim Ummah here in Nigeria has to change. We have to change in our approach to education. Education being the most primary element for societal change. Prophet Muhammad وسلم, was first and foremost after receiving revelation he was first and foremost a teacher. A teacher of that revelation. Conveying that revelation to his people and with those of his people who accepted conveying the words of Allah to humankind. Prophet Muhammad was the ultimate teacher and the relationship between himself and his companions was that of teacher and student. They were students 
and he was the teacher. The teacher who lived his teachings, who was the guide, who was the example, who received the revelation and who lived that revelation. When Aisha was asked, when she was asked about the character of the Prophet she said, كَانَ خُلُقُهُ الْقُرْآنِ His character was that of the Qur'an. So he was the living example of the Qur'an. The life that he lived is inseparable from understanding the Qur'an. That's why we reject anyone who would claim today that we are only following the Qur'an. We would reject anyone who claims that as not a true Muslim. One who is in fact not following the Qur'an. They claim they are only following the Qur'an. They don't want to hear about the Sunnah. Then they are not following the Qur'an. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in the Qur'an that we must follow the Sunnah. He has told us that the Qur'an was revealed to Prophet Muhammad in order that he would clarify to us its meanings. وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَ لِتُبَيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ مَا نُزِّلَ إِلَيْهِمْ The Qur'an was revealed, is what Allah said. To you, O Muhammad in order that you would clarify to the people what was revealed for them. That was his primary role with regards to the Qur'an. So one cannot claim correctly to only follow the Qur'an. When the understanding of the text depends on the clarifications of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Besides the fact that Allah has commanded us in the Quran to follow the Prophet in his teachings, his explanations, his clarifications, when he said, مَا أَتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُ Whatever the messenger has given you, has instructed you, take it, follow it. وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ And whatever he has forbidden you, leave it. So how can you know what the Prophet ﷺ instructed us if you don't follow the Sunnah? As I was explaining, regarding the Qur'an and its understanding for those who claim that they only follow the Qur'an that Prophet Muhammad had instructed us to follow the instructions of Rasulullah when he told us مَا أَتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ 
Whatever the messenger has given us, we should take it, follow it, and whatever he has forbidden us, we should leave and abandon. This is the basic instruction of Allah SWT with regards to the instructions and commandments, prohibitions of Rasulullah Wasallam. So how can we possibly follow the Qur'an which tells us to obey the Messenger without knowing what the Messenger told us to obey? And obedience to the Messenger is tied to Jannah. When the Prophet ﷺ had said, all of my ummah, my nation, will enter paradise. He went on to say, except for those who refuse. Naturally, the messenger's companions, alayhimussalam, or radiallahu anhum, they automatically asked him who would refuse who would refuse to go to Jannah he said man ata'ani dakhla jannah whoever obeys me will enter paradise wa man asani faqad aba and whoever disobeys me has refused so when Allah Taala told us to obey the Messenger, when the Almighty told us to obey the Messenger, He was telling us the way to paradise. And He also equated the commands of the Prophet ﷺ with the commands of Allah. When he said, Whoever obeyed the Messenger has obeyed Allah. So he has made the instructions equivalent. So, it is unacceptable for a Muslim to say that he or she only follows the Qur'an. It is simply unacceptable. It may be kufr, actual disbelief, or there may be some excuse for ignorance on the part of those who know know better, they didn't know better, that's what they were taught, that's how they came to understand Islam. So there is some excuse for them, ignorance. But for those who know, who have full access, and yet refuse to accept the sunnah, they have actually disbelieved. And simply because one calls oneself a Muslim, doesn't mean that they are automatically believers. 
because we have the Qadiani Ahmadi community. Qadiani, the Ahmadis, I'm sure they're here in Nigeria also. The scholars of the Muslim world agreed unanimously back in the 70s in the World Muslim League, Al-Rabitatul Alam al-Islami, scholars from all across the Muslim world came together and agreed that the Ahmadis and Qadianis are not Muslims. They are simply not Muslims. Why? Because they claim that Ahmed Mirza Ahmed Gulam or Gulam Mirza Ahmed was a prophet of Allah after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. A man from India in the 19th century who claimed to have received revelations from Allah created the sect with the support of the British colonial administration. He was given honors and medals, etc. by the British colonial administration in appreciation of his work in undermining Islam, misguiding Muslims. That individual claimed prophethood and in his claim to prophethood was kufr. So anyone who believes in him, like the Qadianis as a prophet of Allah, or the Ahmadis who claim that, no, he wasn't a prophet of Allah, but he was a reformer, an Islamic reformer. Either way, this man was not a Muslim. It's like recognizing Musaylama, Al-Kazab, as being an Islamic reformer. That's unacceptable. He was a disbeliever who claimed he was a prophet of Allah. Because the Prophet ﷺ, he clearly said, La Nabiya Ba'di, there will be no messenger after me. No prophet will come after Muhammad. ﷺ. He is, as Allah said, Khatamun Nabiyin. The seal of the prophethood. So Islamic or Islamized education requires us to follow both the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And this is the foundation which we have to hold on firmly. As the Prophet ﷺ had told us, تَرَكْتُ فِيكُمْ أَمْرَيْنَ I've left with you two things. إِن تَمَسَّكْتُمْ بِهِمَا لَن تَدِلُّوا أَبَدًا If you hold on firmly to them, you will never go astray. Kitabullah, the book of Allah, the sunnati, and my sunnah. This is the foundation of Islam, of Islamic community, Islamic society, Islamic state, 
Islamic empire. This is the foundation of Islamic education. If we understand education to be as defined by some scholars, the way by which a civilization conveys its value, its values to the next generation, then truly the Quran and the Sunnah have to be a part and parcel of any educational process which takes place in the Muslim community. Essential. So, we have a challenge before us. As Nigerians, we have a challenge to change the future of Nigeria through proper Islamized education. Education which follows the principles, the guidance of the Quran and the Sunnah. This is the challenge that we are faced with. So, I would advise the community to ensure that when you establish Islamic schools, primary, intermediate, and secondary, as well as tertiary university education, that that in education is guided by the Quran and the Sunnah. Because this is what made the Muslim Ummah great in the past. And it is the lack of it which makes the Sunnah, the Ummah, inferior in the present. And it is its return which will make the Ummah again great in the future. We should have no doubt that there is no other way. In order to do that, it means we have to take a different approach to the education of the next generation. We cannot sit by and continue to teach our children, our youths, our young adults, as they were taught in our generation and the generations before, from the time and after. We cannot continue to do that. Because to continue to do that is to continue to fail in the realm of Islamic education. We might succeed in mastering different fields of learning from a secular perspective. We've become engineers, 
We have become doctors, we have become lawyers, we have become, and we have become. But we lack the guidance of the Quran and the Sunnah, except for the few who Allah, through His mercy, has allowed them or guided them to learn Islamic teachings in order to guide them in the implementation of their various professions. My university, the Islamic Online University, you hear it called, or it's referred to as the Islamic Online University. Our foundation is a Bachelor's of Arts in Islamic Studies. And we have below it a free diploma in Islamic Studies. Open and completely free to any and everyone. The Bachelor's in Islamic Studies is a serious course of study matching or close to that which is taught in global Islamic institutions like Medina, Al-Azhar, Omdurman in Sudan and elsewhere and Really, there is an effort by some local scholars in Nigeria to try to adopt the Islamic Online University curriculum for the bachelors in Islamic studies, to adopt it to replace the existing Islamic studies programs which are in the universities of Nigeria, which were designed by Orientalists, designed by non-Muslims to produce individuals, to produce individuals who may be knowledgeable in history of Muslim peoples, but not in usul al-fiqh. Usul al-Tafsir, Usul al-Hadith, Usul al-Aqidah, the critical areas of Islamic learning, they, for the most part, are quite ignorant. Even Arabic, you have now PhDs in Islamic studies being produced here in Nigeria, who don't even know how to read the Quran properly. This is reality. Because those who designed the curriculum were themselves ignorant of Arabic and were Orientalist uh, influenced. So the whole system across the country is not producing Islamic scholars who will benefit the Ummah, but people with degrees in Islamic studies who are in fact ignorant to a large degree to the real teachings of 
Islam, Sharia, and as such, are of little benefit to the Ummah. In fact, many of them may actually become enemies of the Ummah. We hear of people across the country, in different states, etc., who have degrees in Islamic studies, who are espousing many un-Islamic beliefs, un-Islamic statements, which go against teachings. So it's not surprising when the basis of their own educational background was not from proper Islamic learning sources. So, we have the challenge to reintroduce proper Islamic uh, learning into our educational system at the tertiary level and furthermore the Islamic Online University from the time we graduated our first batch in 2014, the bachelor's program started in 2010, 2014 our first batch graduated. From that point, we expanded our faculties to include a bachelor's in education, in Islamic banking and finance, in psychology, in information technology, in business administration and in Arabic. So the majority of our courses currently are not specifically Islamic per se. However, all of these courses are taught from an Islamic perspective. All of these areas which are critical areas whether education, whether psychology, etc., they are taught from an Islamic perspective. And this approach needs to be taken in our primary, secondary institutions so that we have truly Islamic schools. Not Islamic schools in name, merely because the proprietor, the owner of the school is a Muslim, the administration of the school consists of Muslims, the faculty of the school also are Muslims, and the children in the school are Muslims. We have Arabic, Quran, Islamic studies also taught a few periods in the week, so we say we now have an Islamic school. That is not an Islamic school. That is a school for Muslims. A Muslim school. Muslim owned, Muslim run, Muslim attended. But it is not an Islamic school. Until and unless Every subject in the school is taught from an Islamic perspective. So that when the students graduate from the institution and you ask them about Sir Isaac Newton, 
they will know, as they know today, that he was the one who proposed the theory of gravity because an apple, he was sitting under an apple tree and an apple fell and hit him on his head and it caused him to think about how and why that apple fell. Gravity. Why didn't it go up? Or sideways? It fell down onto his head. Gravity. Everybody knows Sir Isaac Newton, right? Is there anybody here who doesn't know Sir Isaac Newton? Never heard of him? See, we all heard of him. And if I ask you about Einstein, you will always hands. Yeah, we all know him. Einstein. Theory of relativity. E equals MC squared. Split the atom. On the basis of his famous theory. And if I ask you about Archimedes, you know who he is. Volume. How do we calculate volume? Greek scientist. I ask you about Galileo. Astronomer, we all know, developer of the telescope, etc. But if I ask you about Al Hassan ibn Al Haytham, you look at me and say, Who is that, a football player? From Arabia, who is playing now in France or Germany? No, he wasn't. He was the 13th century inventor of the camera. How? The camera, the principles which govern the camera were invented, were proposed by this genius, by the name of Al-Hassan ibn Al-Haytham. And nobody here knows who he was. What does that say? It says there's something seriously wrong in our educational process. Seriously wrong. And if I spoke to you about Al-Khawarizmi or Al-Jabr or Ibn Sina, etc. It's the same response. We know the Western scholars, scientists, etc. But we don't know what Muslims have contributed to world civilization. We are cut off from our legacy, the legacy of the earlier generations. And if we look into the manuscripts of the scholars of the past, like Al-Hassan, when he was discussing optics, because he was a genius in optics. He laid down the principles that all of the related inventions governing or a part of optics, whether it's the television or the camera as I mentioned, or so many other things that depend on optics, the eyeglasses, everything. dissected the human eye, you see in his manuscripts, drawings describing the eyes and how they function. And in the middle of his discussion 
on optics and how the eye operates and all this thing, you will see him in, its, in, the, in the manuscript saying, وَقَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى And Allah said. And further on in the manuscript as you're reading, you see him say, وَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ It's there. Because from the Qur'an and from the Sunnah, there are statements which are relevant to virtually every area of learning. And that's how we need our generation to learn the Qur'an. The Qur'an as it is relative and relevant to life, real life. We don't need to learn the Qur'an as something, Qur'an Sunnah, as something traditional, ritual, customary, we quote it on different occasions, but it really has no specific relevance to our lives. Our children from grade one, from kindergarten even, as they're studying, they should hear the Qur'an, not as entertainment, Right now the Qur'an for us is mostly a means of entertainment. Before we start events we have a Qari come up and he recites some verses of the Qur'an which are not even relevant to the topic. And everybody sits and listens and they have no idea what the Qur'an is saying. This was not how the Qur'an was meant to be recited. Not in this way, not with this purpose. To entertain audiences. The Quran is a book of guidance. And it can only be a book of guidance if we understand what it says. So, the child from kindergarten, from grade one, two, three, if in every class a verse of the Quran or a portion of a verse of the Quran is mentioned, they recite it, the teacher explains it, and it's relevant to the class. Then what message are we sending to the children? That the Qur'an is relevant and, rele and, and uh, applicable. It has relevance to our day-to-day -day life, to whatever we are learning. Allah has something to say. The Qur'an is not just a, a book for the old people, like myself, before you die you read some Qur'an, it's for them. No, it is for everyone. It is a book of guidance. Similarly, the Sunnah. For sure, virtually any topic you take in school, studied in school, there will be a hadith, a statement of the Prophet which has relevance to that topic. So, in every class, the children need to hear it. We don't have to teach them big long hadith to memorize. We just give them the portion of the hadith, short hadith, which is relevant to the topic they are studying. 
Because Quran, which has no relevance, passing that off as knowledge is a disservice to the Ummah. Prophet Muhammad said, he used to make the dua commonly, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min ilmin la yanfa'ah. In knowledge which is of no benefit. So even though the knowledge itself is good, useful knowledge, but if it is given to us when it has no relevance to us, then it becomes useless knowledge. So we have to be conscious of, of the subjects that we teach in school to make sure that they are Islamized. And in every class, from kindergarten to grade 12 to degree, PhD, in every class there should be a moral message. The instructor, the teacher, the professor should strive to introduce somehow, some way in that class a moral message. Why? Because Rasulullah sallallahu said, "Inna ma I was only sent to perfect for you the highest of moral character traits. That was the essence of the message. The message is a moral message. That's why Rasulullah had said, Al-Bir Righteousness, true righteousness is good moral character. That is true righteousness. So we need to bring that back into the classroom. Western secular education took morality out of the classroom. What remained in the books of the Christians, the Bible, etc., and the Jews, the Torah. This was the basis of education in the Christian world. But in the 19th and 20th century, they removed that moral foundation from education. Completely. And what did it produce? World War I and World War II. World War I in which some 14 million lives were lost. 14 million. They like to talk about Muslims as being terrorists, killing left and right. But if you add up all of the people who have been killed in Muslim wars, wars involved in Muslims, terrorism, terrorists, ISIS, Boko Haram and the others, if you add up all the people, and I'm not saying this to justify what evil Muslims have done in the name of Islam, some Muslims have done, but if you add in all, all of those people who died, you'll not even reach one million. World War One took 14 million lives. And it was supposed to have been the war to end all wars. Then, 
20 years later, less than 20 years later, they had World War II. World War II in which 64 million lives were lost. 64 million. And they are talking about Muslims. They forget themselves. Forget their own history. Recent history. Not ancient history. Recent history. And they are pointing the finger at Muslims. We have become the scapegoats. But reality, again, we need to bring morality back into the classroom. Because understanding Islamic morality will prevent Boko Haram. Because the atrocities committed by Boko Haram, when we hear about them, they are unthinkable. You say, how could a Muslim do that? A Muslim who has not received moral teachings. He has gone through school in a secular environment. He has no moral compass. So whatever leader he attaches himself to, that leader now tells him, do this, don't do this, so and so. And he follows blindly. And he commits crimes against the Muslims. Killing Muslims in the name of Islam. Declaring Muslims to be disbelievers in the name of Islam. This is because Islam is been, has been removed from the educational process. Muslims need to know what are the true teachings of Islam. From a moral perspective as well as from a legal perspective. So we have a duty to establish proper Islamic or Islamized institutions which will produce a generation that can change the nation, can be an example to other Muslim nations of what the Ummah was meant to be. And just as a brief example that we need to look at, most of us here are I think professionals, some of us here are students, but if I were to ask you as previous students or as current students, who among you can raise his hand in this group, who among you can raise his or her hand and say, Wallahi, during my life as a student, Wallahi, I never cheated on any test or examination. Who can raise his hand? Please, do so. You understand what I said, right? I don't see any hands. Huh? Oh, yeah. We have one another hand for the brothers, two hands. Huh? Three hands out of hundred and plus present. So what does this tell us? 
the biggest problem facing the Ummah here is what? Corruption. Isn't it? This is what the President Bukhari has launched a campaign against corruption. But reality is that the corrupt administrators, if they were removed, all of them, and replaced by yourselves, <laughs> would the situation be any different? No, maybe worse, as you said. He will say they ate, and now it is our time to eat. That's the reality. That is the reality. So how can we change the future? If we keep doing the same thing, we keep getting the same results. That's the reality. We are caught in a cycle that is taking us nowhere. So this is the challenge when we talk about education that we need to develop institutions where we can ask our graduating students same question and all their hands will be coming up. When we have that graduating class, now we have the means of changing the future. That is the true product of an Islamic educational institution where all the hands were raised, maybe a couple will not put their hand up, but the vast majority will be raising their hands when that question is asked. Because that is the litmus test. Prophet Muhammad said what? Man ghashana, Whoever cheats us, whoever cheats, is not of us. Not a true Muslim. Cheating is the antithesis of Islam. It is the complete opposite of Islam. So, this is the challenge that is before us today as a community. If we want to change this nation, then we have to change our process and methodology for education. And this is the basic message which I came to share with you this afternoon. And uh, inshallah, I can turn the presentation over to you. If you have any questions you would like to ask, inshallah, I will be happy to try to answer them. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. With regards to the NUC, and my primary purpose of visiting Nigeria at this time was to meet and give a presentation of how the Islamic Online University operates to the NUC. We gave a three-hour presentation to them, something they had never experienced before, and something on the basis of which they will set standards. 
However, at the end of our presentation, the NUC informed us that they do not have policies in place to accredit an online institution. They don't have it. Yes, they did give accreditation to Ahmed Ubalo University's master's program online. They gave permission to it. But because it was an already established conventional university in the country, it is a program that they're giving uh, accreditation to, not the institution. So we can't say this is the same as that. However, as they told us, since our university is accredited in Somalia and in the Gambia, it's a licensed, recognized university of the Gambia, that just as if any Nigerian went to the Gambia and studied in UTG, the University of the Gambia, or they studied in <coughs> the university, East-West University in Somalia, in Mogadishu, and they came back with accredited degrees from those countries. Nigeria is obliged to recognize those degrees. Just as those countries are obliged to recognize Nigerian degrees. So, we can operate here in Nigeria, we can advertise, and if anyone raises a question to us concerning the value or credibility of our degrees, they will be informed by the NUC that we are accredited universities uh, in Somalia and the Gambia. And as such, our degrees are accepted here in Nigeria. And being an online university, students are not required to do the NYSE, right? They're, they're exempted from it. They will get what is called an exclusive certificate, just as the Open University of Nigeria graduates are not required to do the NYSE. They have exclusion certificates, exemption certificates, likewise will be the case of our graduates. And furthermore, we are in the process of affiliating with universities, other universities here in Nigeria. Uh, our graduates, inshallah, will be accepted in the universities of Nigeria and if any problem arises we have the Ministry of Higher Education backing which we would call on in case of any difficulty. So I hope that clarifies the issues. Uh, we will seek, we will continue to seek uh, accreditation of our programs, etc., from the NUC, just to 
give Nigerian students further confidence. But technically speaking, as we are right now, we have been given the okay to operate here in Nigeria and assurance that our degrees would be recognized since they are accredited elsewhere. Islam 
and who was a great medical practitioner. His aqidah was in question. His aqidah was distorted. We could say he was misguided. We don't promote him for his aqidah. But being from the Muslim Ummah, he had major contributions to the field of medicine. That even till today, some of the instruments which he devised are in common use. So yes, uh, when we teach about Ibn Sina as distinct from others that I mentioned, that clarification should be made that his aqidah or his belief were distorted, deviated in terms of his belief in Allah and the Messenger. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Sheikh is adding the uh, issue of do we declare people like Ibn Sina to be disbelievers? You know, and I myself am wary about that because it is possible for a Muslim to state words of kufr or words of shirk, but we still don't call him a kafir and a mushrik. Because the, the distinguish between acts and words and actual belief. And that distinction should be made. We should be very careful about the takfir. Uh, and uh, to be honest, I have not specialized in the study of the aqidah of Ibn Sina to uh, make any final pronouncements on it. But I would just say, be careful. Okay, the issue about the silence of Muslims with regards to the killings in Syria. This is what was asked. Huh? I question whether in fact there is silence. We can say that what Muslims have to say is not carried in the media because it doesn't sell papers. The killings sell papers, so it is printed, it is promoted. But the Muslim response, for the most part, is hidden. And this has been a deliberate campaign in the media to make Muslims appear to be supportive as a whole, the Ummah, supportive of atrocities committed in the name of Islam or against Muslims by Muslims or by non-Muslims. That Muslims are silent. And of course silence implies consent. But this is a false presentation in the Ummah. 
Muslim scholars all across the Muslim world have spoken. Whenever these incidences occur, etc., but we don't have control of the media. The media is not in our hands. And as such, the position of Muslims is commonly silenced in the media. This is a standard procedure that has been going on for some time now. What is the stand of the scholars? What is the stand of the Democratic Republic? The Jamaat al-Tabliq, for the most part, is a Muslim Jamaat. They are the biggest Islamic movement in the world. Many people have accepted Islam from the da'wah of their followers. Many Muslims have been called back to Islam and the practice of Islam by their followers. So we should beware of declaring them en masse to be deviants outside of Islam, etc. However, in their ranks are some books and some speakers who hold beliefs which are deviant from the original teachings of the early generations of Muslims, no doubt, leaning towards Sufism, etc. But you cannot say that as a blanket statement for all of the followers or the scholars amongst them. So I would beware of takfir here again, even more so in the case of Jamaat al-Tabliq. We may not necessarily, but it doesn't make them disbelievers. And why I stress this? Because if we are going to declare people to become disbelievers because they have held a belief which is not in agreement with the main position of early Muslim scholarship, etc., then those who make this kind of a claim, for the most part, hold Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah as one of the leading scholars of authentic Islam. Is that true or not? Yes. But what if I told you that Ibn Taymiyyah took the position and so did his student Ibn Al-Qayyim took the position that hell comes to an end. That hell comes to an end. It is not forever. What would you say if everybody comes and says to you, hell is not forever. What are you going to say? This person is brilliant, misguided. Maybe he says kafir. But Ibn Taymiyyah took that position. It is in his writings. It is 
books. That was no position. He had evidence. He did bring hadiths. He did bring verses from the Quran in defense of that position. But the hadiths were not authentic. He obviously thought they were when he used them. And he came to a wrong conclusion. That is just one concept. We don't negate his contribution and his greatness in terms of Islamic knowledge and authentic Islam and all of this because he made a mistake. You bring me one scholar who has never made a mistake. Doesn't exist. The Prophet said, Adam All descendants of Adam commit mistakes. And the best of those who made mistakes are those who are repenting, repentful. So beware of declaring Muslims to be disbelievers. Prophet had warned against it. That whoever says to his brother, Ya Kafir, O you disbeliever, he says to his brother Muslim, O you disbeliever, either it is true and applicable to him, if it's not, then it becomes applicable to you. I, then it's not related. <laughs> That's a whole other... Yeah, yeah, we'll answer. I'll answer, but I'm saying, it, you know, you said it's related. It's not related. No, we don't go anywhere. Yeah. The issue, the or the claim that when scholars are asked about matrimonial issues, that they skirt away, they try to avoid them and say it's controversial. I, I think this is uh, not enough, a fair, uh, a fair assessment or a fair judgment. I cannot believe that the scholars, meaning those with proper knowledge of Sharia, ask about questions of matrimony, they don't answer. And they avoid answering. I cannot believe that. I would not accept it. That doesn't make sense. If you want to talk about a particular issue with regards to matrimony, yes, we can say maybe some scholars avoid it, like Missia marriage. People ask, well, what about Missia marriage? Right? Missia marriage in which a wife gives up her right to maintenance. Is this a valid marriage or not? Some scholars may say this is a controversial area about it. And but reality with regards to Missia marriage is that it's marriage. If a wife decides that she wants to give up her right to maintenance, she says, Listen, I just want a husband. I have my own means, I can take care of myself, I don't need a man to take care of me. But I just want to be married. I want to enjoy matrimony. Does she have the right to do that? No scholar will say no. No scholar will say she doesn't have the right to do that. She has the right. Now, if she gave it up, can she change her mind? Now comes your point. Now comes the point of controversy. 
Can she change her mind later? After having married on the basis that the man doesn't have to support her. That is the point. I support the opinion of the scholars who say she has the right to change her opinion. Unless it is written in the marriage contract. If it's written in the marriage contract, then she's held. Just as if a man writes in a marriage contract that his wife has the right to pronounce divorce. This can be written. A wife who is very jealous, she doesn't want her husband to marry anybody else. She has the right at the time of marriage, when the marriage contract is being done, to have a condition that if her, she doesn't have the right to put in her marriage that her husband cannot marry another wife because that is going against Allah's permission. She cannot write that. It's not acceptable. But she can write that if her husband decides to marry another wife, she has the right to pronounce divorce. That's her way out. She says, if you decide to marry somebody else, I want to leave. Does she have the right to do that? Yeah. Some scholars hold that no, even that she can't do. But the Prophet had said that whatever condition uh, does not go against the Book of Allah uh, in marriage, in the marriage contract, should be fulfilled. And the right to pronounce divorce was given in the time of the Prophet and he approved of it. When a man came to him and asked him, he said, my wife divorced me. He, the Prophet asked him, you gave her permission? He said, yes, I gave her permission, but she divorced me. He said, well, you gave her permission? So he recognized the divorce. The other question was what now? Did Adam marry more than one wife? Allah knows best. We don't have any authority to say anything on this matter. Because if there's not something in the Quran, not something in the Sunnah, then it's just speculation. It's just speculation. Let me just add that the point here is that scholars should not argue that Adam had more than one wife. In order to counter the argument of those who said he only had one wife. As those who said he only have, had one wife have no evidence, those who said he had more than one wife also don't have evidence. So that's why we said, Allah wa Rasulahu a'lam. They know better. The fact that the Prophet did not speak on it, all we can deduce from that is that it was not important. 
great important and necessary knowledge that we needed to have, we would have spoken, be silent on matters which we need to know. So all we can say is that we don't need to know. It's not relevant whether Adam had more than one wife or not. We know that Rasulullah had nine wives at a time, twelve in total. That's enough. Allah said in the Quran, marry the woman of your choice. Not now or to love or whatever. Two, three, or four. He didn't begin with one, he didn't say one, two, three, four. He said two, three, or four. He started with two. That's why Shaykh Nibad said that it is mustahab. It is recommended that a man have, as being able, that a man have more than one wife. Because Allah began with two. And for those not able, then one. And we should remember also too, when dealing with non-Muslims who make an issue about polygamy amongst Muslims and all this, that the Qur'an is the only quote-unquote holy book in the world that specifies marriage to only one wife. The other books don't say anything. There is nothing in the Bible or the Torah which says marry only one. The practice of the prophets as mentioned in those books is that they married multiple wives. Nothing which says only one. Only the Quran says marry only one when you are unable to marry more. But it still said my only one. The text is there. Seeking knowledge and obligation made easy. Thought about studying for a long time? Tuition fees keeping you from actually starting? Islamic Online University has led a revolution in online learning. The world's first tuition-free degree, BA in Islamic Studies. Access to the knowledge, any place, anytime, anywhere. It just doesn't get any easier than that. Classes, texts, assignments, completely online. Set your own schedule for the semester. No overseas travel required for the exams. Subjects taught by qualified English-speaking scholars. Weekly live sessions in virtual classrooms. With curricula based on those in El Medina University in Saudi Arabia. El Azhar University in Cairo and other reputable institutions around the world. Why wait any longer? You pay just a symbolic registration fee and are ready to begin the adventure of higher education. The most diverse student body of any university in the world. 130,000 plus registered students from 217 countries. Log in to the website for more details. www.islamiconlineuniversity.com